0: Hello and welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and as part of my team for this mission is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, everyone. I see your head bobbing in the background. Are you humming the Mission Impossible theme song to yourself? Yeah, by ch- okay. I am. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just,
1: it's just bopping right up here in the brain. Like. I love it. I
0: absolutely love it.
1: Well, listeners, your
0: mission, should you choose to accept it, is to enjoy this conversation about the original film in this series, as well as come back the next two weeks, which we will be spending discussing. Rogue Nation, and then of course Dead Reckoning Part One. Also, if you're listening to this before the 4th of July, just a little reminder that the spoiler free FF Plus episode review of Dead Reckoning Part One will be up on the morning of July the 5th, as well as a series ranking between myself and a fellow Seattle film critic who joined me for that review. So tune in for that one as well, and then of course, come back a couple weeks later for me and Patrick to dive deep into spoiler territory, which that one, I will tell you, definitely needs. All right, speaking of spoilers, this is your spoiler warning for this film, which was made in 1996. So go watch it. If you haven't watched it, what's wrong with you? Maybe maybe because you weren't alive. That's what I'm thinking, Patrick. I'm thinking the people... Actually, I'll segue into this before we start. There are people out there, Patrick, who have not watched the first group of Mission Impossible films. Like their knowledge of the series begins in what I would call the modern era with Brad Bird's Ghost Nation, Ghost Nation, Ghost, <laughs> Ghost Protocol, <laughs> uh, and then Rogue Nation, and then Fallout. Like they really only know that later subset of film. It's kind of like people who never watched Fast and the Furious one through four, right? Whose understanding of that series begins at Fast Five. It's just kind of uh, fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, in preparation for this particular movie. So, this is a big weekend for me that I'm trying to dedicate to specific movies. Every summer, I put together in my head, I'm eventually going to put it hopefully on our website or on my blog or something, the essential movies that you watch throughout the summer like summer movies, movies that make you think of summer, movies that take place during summer. And the 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 bulk of that not bulk, but the the big ep, the big movies that I watch over Fourth of July weekend are The Way Way Back and Jaws. So those are happening tomorrow and Tuesday. I'm going to try to see if I can get my dad to watch Jaws with me. I think I'm the and I've watched it together, which would be great. But along with that, of course, Mission Impossible for the podcast. My wife and I were talking at dinner last night about Henry Cavill. She's been watching The Witcher, which is surprising because that's not really her genre of things, but she likes Henry Cavill, as I do as well, probably for different reasons. And anyway, <laughs> we were talking about the fact that I said, "Yeah, he's he's great in Mission Impossible." She goes, "What?" And so I was like, "Yeah, he was in uh, the latest Mission Impossible before this new one." So we actually sat down and watched that one last night. <laughs> so so I'm watching all these all these movies like in weird order. Like I'm going to be doing I did, I did uh Fallout last night. I did Mission Impossible today and now I'm going to do Rogue Nation sometime this week before going into the uh, the latest one uh in a couple of weeks. So it's but to your point, she I don't believe has seen many of those. She remembers seeing Fallout after watching several several minutes of this. But it tells me that she has not seen – she's probably seen the original, but she hasn't seen, like, Rogue Nation, Ghost Protocol. I mean, she doesn't recall the history that those movies have sort of created with Ethan and his team of people and recurring characters and whatnot. And so, to me, it was weird because watching Fallout, I was like, okay, I've got to get acclimated. What what happened before and <laughs> what's happening in this one? And, you know, for for the most part, we're just like, I want to see Henry Cavill, like, cock his arms and, and destroy somebody because that's really what we came to be- – came to watch, came, you know. came for the cavil, but we stayed for the movie. So, yeah, it's it's bizarre and at the same time not surprising because this is a franchise that just doesn't seem to want to end, although it sounds like it's going to with uh the second part of Dead Reckoning that has not released, but uh we'll see how that goes.
0: Yes, yes, you will. I already know how it goes, but I can't tell. Ah, you,
1: you okay. So, whatever.
0: Sorry. I gotta, gotta flex it every once in a while. You know? <laughs> I gotta. It's flex not because you wouldn't muscles. see. That's the pro- that's what sucks. Is it's not because you wouldn't. If Arkansas had a film screening world, like the ability to do this, I guarantee there are certain movies that you would make time to go to early. Obviously, you wouldn't go every single week once or twice like I do because you have a lot of things going on and a family to take care of and to spend time with and i don't in the way that you do so but you would make time if you were gonna you were able to see mission impossible dead reckoning two weeks early two and a half weeks early i have a feeling that you would
1: probably go do that so oh oh it's more than a feeling it's a full-on like (laughs) action thing that i would exactly it's definitely one of those (laughs) so it's not because it's not for lack
0: of being it's able, access. It's lack or, of yeah. access. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Lack it's, of it's, access. It,
1: I'm not, I'm not not doing it on principle. It's not like I just want to be a Holding the white person. man down. That's just no. what it
0: is. I'm sorry. Okay. People don't turn us off. That was a joke. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. I, I just got us canceled. Oh, well. All right. So Mission Impossible, back to the movie. Prior to this film, for those who also don't know this, Mission Impossible existed as a television series i actually think there's a lot of people that don't know that it ran from 1966 to 1973 and then there was a follow-up series which ran for two seasons from 1988 through 1990 it was i think pretty short uh, as far as number of episodes go this is my first introduction to the mission impossible world patrick i did watch some of those I certainly don't think I was old enough to remember to have watched all of them I don't remember many details but I do remember the TV credits and I remember the missions that would self-destruct and certain iconic phrases and aspects of this series that that was my first like time seeing them and I also Wanted to note that Jim Phelps, the character played by John Voight, was portrayed by Peter Graves in the TV show. He actually won a Golden Globe for that. And when John Voight's character is revealed to be a traitor, if you're watching this movie for the first time nowadays, it's just kind of a normal movie twist. But if you were watching this 6 years after having seen these two seasons of a TV show in which the head of the team was able to win a golden globe for his portrayal and then all of a sudden the new version of him is a twist and turns out to be the one who went rogue, I that would have been a much much bigger deal. And some people were actually upset. In fact, Jim Phelps himself was Frustrated, or not Jim Phelps himself, Peter Graves, (laughs) was uh, frustrated that he was not asked to reprise his role and was annoyed that they took his character and turned him rogue. And so I just thought that was interesting, kind of a little bit of trivia to throw in there. And I wanted to ask if you ever had watched the TV series at all.
1: No, I never did. And I never went back and tried to because, in this day and age with everything on streaming, I was actually just looking this up. It's all on Paramount Plus. So I definitely want to check out the pilot episode, maybe the first couple, just to get the flavor. But I do remember, at least from my dad, because he, I don't know if he watched this on a regular basis, but he was definitely familiar with it. He did tell me that there were beats and different kinds of portions of the movie that were iconic. Like the. Each episode would start with a montage of what was going to happen in the episode. So it's like the worst spoiler, like the non-spoilery credits ever, or no, spoiler credits ever. It's like, here's what's going to happen. But I thought that was pretty fascinating to do it that way because it basically said, oh, I can't wait to see what happens with that moment right there. And I got the same thing with the movie. And the other thing was, of course, you know, the mission, you choose to accept it. This message will self-destruct. The spirit of all that lives in this first entry and I was really excited about that. I, I remember um, just walking into the movie theater or wherever I was seeing it, and, and walking out, going, "Man, that was that was pretty phenomenal." And having no like like real knowledge of the TV series, it made me want to go back and at least check that out. So I'm going to be doing that probably in the next you know few days, or maybe in the next couple of weeks, just seeing what was it like. But uh, but other than that, I had no like connection with the show at all. Yeah, I'm going to have to
0: do that too. I'm glad you mentioned that it is on Paramount Plus. That makes sense. Paramount's got not a ton of content, but the content that they have is really strong because they have some incredible IPs. And yeah. all of the stuff related to their IPs are on that service. So it, they have Star Trek, right? I think that's another.
1: Star Trek, huge a one. lot of the stuff. That, yeah, stuff like for me, Nickelodeon type things and TV. So you've got you get all this. Wow. Again, it's really. I guess I didn't realize this, but Paramount was the place that my childhood lived for the most part because I grew up with Nickelodeon. I grew up watching The Real World and Road Rules and all that stuff, Laguna Beach, all that kind of pre-trashy reality television before it became sort of a a mainstay with the Kardashians and whatnot. But as you said, I mean, um, my wife and I, we walked through 90210 Melrose Place on Paramount+. Plus. It's just, it's it's weird because a lot of your, you're exactly right. It is a licensing hog be, either because it owns a bunch of stuff or because it's, um, you know, part of CBS. Like CBS owned a ton of properties. And so when it became uh, Paramount+, Plus, I think it inherited a lot more. It's, it's kind of like what Max is now between um, HBO and uh, Discovery, like all the reality shows that you were thinking about that were just basically like on TLC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, right. Like the, and uh, it, it's that same way. It's just so much out there that I think Murder She Wrote's on there. As I've told you, I've watched several episodes of that. It's just, yeah, it's it's too much for me to want to get involved in my single show, but at least checking out highlights from these older shows is great opportunity that's, there.
0: I love it. I, I like you. I feel like you give me permission to do it that way and not like I'm such a completionist. That's hard for me. So. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. All right, so Mission Impossible 1, the most different Mission Impossible from any of the others in the series, I would say. Maybe not plot-wise, but stylistically speaking. This film was, like all of the first four, directed by someone different each time. Uh, This was directed by Brian De Palma, and it is very much... A Brian De Palma movie it feels like Brian De Palma if in pretty much almost all ways I would say I dig it and I think that this is probably the reason why people end up putting Mission Impossible 1 wherever they put it in their personal rankings because of the style not necessarily because of the specific story or the specific team members there's a lot of things like when we did our ranking on the FF plus episode to kind of consider and how to separate them out, especially when you're talking about a series that is like really strong quality across the board from start to finish. It's, It's very rare. And I just, I'm so glad and hope that it does not ever, I hope it ends before it falls apart. Like that's what we always want to happen. And so far I think we're okay. But this one definitely is different than everything else. For me, I appreciate it because I I like the very noiry kind of uh, it's it's grimy. It is sort of grounded in a way that most of these you know progressively start to jump the shark a little bit. Uh there's moments in this, of course, that are somewhat fantastical but i think because we're starting off we kind of do things a little bit more on ground level and i like that a lot and i just thought that the you know initial use of masks being in here the introduction of it before it becomes an overused trope and something that you're expecting is such a surprise and such a, a wonderful wonderful mechanic that they were able to hang their hat on. And I th- I just think that everything about this one has a flavor to it that I appreciate because I think of spy stuff in the nineties era as being like this as being kind of hidden and clandestine and not driving around in fancy cars uh, in, you know, not James Bond. This felt different than James Bond, I think. And and in the future, we sort of start to get a closer to that in some ways. I don't. That's how I would describe it. So so, how do you feel about like the Brian De Palma style here?
1: Well, this franchise is interesting to me because it's kind of like Fast and Furious in that I think the original vision was: let's see how this first entry does. And then, like the TV series, let's make it an anthology. Let's give a different director a chance to tell the story of Ethan Hunt and his adventures with uh, with the IMF team. And where I think, I'm going to speak broad strokes about the series first, and then I'll give my thoughts. What made it interesting is that you have John Woo coming in in Mission Impossible 2, which I think is probably the most stylistically different of all of them. Because... Initially, you've got Ethan Hunt with long hair, and it's just, it's filmed in a more just kind of smooth way, like it's a very, I will not call it romantic, but it's just more beautifully shot. It doesn't feel gritty. And then you get into the third entry, which is J.J. Abrams' directorial debut, and that starts to set a tone. So while, yes, the first four entries were four different directors, I think by the third entry... It became sort of a, not really a soft reboot, but like a, okay, we're going to go Mission Impossible the way that James Bond did with Daniel Craig. We're going to take this character and instead of making individual adventures, we're actually going to tie some of this together. Because I think Tom Cruise and company found success with the with the property. And they're like, we can make this bigger. We can make this better. And so looking back at Mission Impossible, I completely agree with you. This is a great entry. And I think because even though there are parts of it that feel a little dated, it works really, really well as a conservative prototype for future installments, where the things you see in this entry are replicated, sometimes to a fault, but they get a little bit bigger with each one, but they're consistent enough. And one of the things I've said so many times to people when I talk about the Mission Impossible franchise is it makes the unbelievable believable. In other words, the tech gadgetry that we see in like Fallout and Rogue Nation which is so much fun, wouldn't feel as realistic had this first entry not given us gum that has a red light, green light explosive mechanism to it, or the pull away face masks, or all these different things that are like, man, this looks like this is what would happen. It's a lot like how you and I feel about the first couple of seasons of Fringe, where the writers were taking advantage of the fact that there are actual scientific phenomena in the world Let's push those to the boundary so that we can get a believability factor in there. Then we can push. So by the time you get to Fallout, and I'm watching this with my wife, and I'm thinking about Mission Impossible in my head, the original. I'm like, man, what a distance this is because everything is so big. It's it's very seasoned. It doesn't feel like your Michael Bay just explosions, 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 but it does feel like it's a more mature story, a more uh, grandiose type of thing. And I don't think that would have existed had we not gotten this sort of taste test of Mission Impossible in 1996. And that's why I continue to go back to it because the roots of what I love about the franchise really exist in this pilot, what I call a pilot, this first entry because of all the things that it sets up. And so I'm looking for those things. I'm looking for the gadgetry. I'm looking for the, the rhythm of your mission, if you choose to accept, okay. How are they going to make this thing uh, self-destruct at this point? And it's so cool how all these things that have become familiar still feel fresh, even down to the opening credits. I know that you're going to get a cold open, you're going to get the the act, the title sequence, and I'm going to see all this cool stuff that I'll never be able to piece together until after I've seen the movie. Like, when does this take place? And again, I think it all comes back to having a really successful first entry, and that's why I think Mission Impossible one works as well as it does
0: yeah i would agree wholeheartedly and i i mean there are if you would if you stand back a year like what are the most iconic things from the whole series you just rattled off a couple and you're gonna do that probably even more time you've got the infiltration of the cia to steal the knocklist. i mean th- that is an image that everyone knows even if they haven't seen the movie and that is power like That is cinematic power when it's like Indiana Jones and the rolling boulder. You don't have to have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is in the zeitgeist. You know what that is. You know what that means. And the same thing with Tom, you know, spread eagle, hanging there by the computer. I mean, it's such an awesome scene too. I think that the cast in this one is very strong. One of the things that I will admit I had wrong was I was what I was surprised. I'm always surprised when Emilio Estevez shows up for a cup of coffee before getting impaled. That's a Brian De Palma thing again. Like most movies would not imply it didn't show it. So I guess he had some restraint probably to keep this thing at PG-13. Normal De Palma would have definitely had a, a little bit of a bloodier end for poor Emilio. But, you know, like he's a recognizable actor. I thought it might have been a bigger cameo death than maybe it was, though. I went back and I was looking at his filmography this morning, Patrick, and our boy Emilio Estevez didn't quite have the career that my brain as a super fan of Young Guns 1 and Young Guns 2 told me he had, (laughs) you know, after that franchise, which to me is like a five star duo of movies, and I'm probably not like in the majority. And then he had... His mighty ducks, run. But I'm looking at where Mission Impossible fell, and really, I mean, Free Jack in '92, four years before that, and Minute Work and Young Guns 2 in 1990. And then he's, you know, he was he was in some good movies in the '80s. He's got a couple of like memorable roles, but he didn't. He was not a movie star. Like he wasn't really owning the screen the way that I think maybe we wish he. Might have.
1: But he was recognizable. He was recognizable. And and I think if you look at the rest of Ethan's team, Sans, (laughs) John Voight, and Sans, Tom Cruise, nobody else at that point felt recognizable. And even now, I'm thinking I have to go back and look at the rest of his team that was killed and go, you know, I don't know of any. I don't know what they've done since then or before then. Estevez. Made a name for himself as a as a as a teenage actor and a young thirties actor and you're right Young Guns I think was his high point and I don't I don't want to say that in like negativity towards him no but it's he's
0: awesome he is no, my Billy yeah. the Kid and, like personally yeah. <laughs> like
1: I but I but but I think the recognizability is is what De was going for and I mean honestly it could have been that he could not hire or he could not afford a bigger name recognizable actor to play that role for 10 minutes. And I I think that for me, it was surprising because this is 96. And as someone who loved the mighty ducks, someone who liked minute work and young guns and all that stuff, his recognizability was about on point with Drew Barrymore's cameo at the beginning of scream. Now, granted she's had a career since then and she's been recognizable, but I think the same effect was there. It's like, Oh my gosh, Tom Cruise Emilio Estevez, this is great, nope, <laughs> not so much we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna usurp you and and that's the thing is I think what makes that whole sequence so great is the fact that it's not the surprising that Estevez dies or his character dies. It's the fact that the whole team initially supposedly gets. Destroyed, like it's gone. My whole team is dead. They're dead. They're all dead. (laughs) Just that whole conversation (laughs) he has on the phone. (laughs) I love how he freaks out (laughs) in that moment because he's absolutely right. You know, he should freak out. But that was the shock of it, right? That was the shock. And then the double shock comes later when he's piecing it all together with with Void, and that that's probably one of my favorite scenes is when he is telling him. Like, oh, yeah, this is how he did it. This is how this other guy did it. And in his head, he's like, no, I know that I could see how you did everything. And it's it's so funny to watch this, Aaron, because we, talk, we think about a guy like J.J. J. Abrams, who directorial debut, Mission Impossible 3. I don't know if he had any kind of connection with the first two movies, but the mystery box is completely in this movie of like, just open it up a little bit more and aha moments. And I'm like, it makes perfect sense that he would attach himself now to uh, in his company, Bad Robot, to these Mission Impossible movies. It makes complete sense that he would do that because this is right up his alley. And so it, it surprises me that he's not involved in these early stages. But then again, he's a young director at this point, not even a director at this point. But, uh, but I think that those are the things that make uh, this movie so great is it's a surprise from the very beginning. I didn't expect Ethan Hunt's entire team to be killed. So what do we do now? And now we get beyond just the knock list, which is still very iconic. But it's still it's a MacGuffin of some kind. It's the thing you're going after in order to get to this other person. But it was sort of filled in with all this other grandiose stuff of like, who's really the bad guy? And can I trust anybody? Which is what kind of the spirit of a lot of the Mission Impossible movies are. Those kinds of themes. Yeah,
0: yeah, I agree. And you know, this makes a run too of John Voight being sort of a bit of a villain i would say you know he is in heat and right before this and then he is in the rainmaker after this and if i recall i believe he's like the slimy one of the slimy like uh, all, you know opposing lawyers for the insurance
1: company oh, yeah, isn't he yeah in, in the rainmaker yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah 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 and then he's you know in a couple other random things he's in enemy of the state Couple years later, and then he ends up at Varsity Blues, uh, of course. And so, you know, he goes on a little bit of a run of being a bad guy. He's he's really good. I just I look at his filmography, and and it reminds me how much of a run he had. Really, I mean, he had Deliverance, but in the nineties and early two thousands, I think was a real strong time for him. But anyway, like the whole cast, I think is really good. But it's interesting how the only one that sticks. Is Luther Ving Raims, and I'm so, so, so glad he did because I really have a hard time imagining the series going forward without him, and I enjoy the recruitment process of him, and that right off the bat in this movie it establishes his character as a character, like he is a person of morals and of values and he is not going to be the one that stabs you in the back. And of course, the other two people on his team in this one are <laughs> one is a the the lying wife of a not really dead man and who's a, a rogue agent and the other one is someone that they hired and knows exactly what he's doing, Jean Renault. But I like that everybody plays their roles really well in here. And I think when you're watching it the first time, And this is probably less about the cast. Maybe it's a mix of the cast and of De Palma. But for me, if I don't watch this movie for six years or seven years, I'm not thinking about the twists and turns. I buy the characters in the way. I'm always suspicious of the wife of Claire. And I think you're supposed to be. But like Jean Reno, because he could have sort of ruined things for Ethan at pretty much any turn, you you get the sense that he's on board, right? Um it's just a it's a really well balanced kind of it gives you a little bit of question, but you're you're not fully thinking he's being yeah um what i can't think of my word manipulated or, yeah manipulated or yeah. did anybody else stick out to you?
1: No, I mean I, I'm I'm with you. I, I really really like Jean Renaud's character. He's and I think it's the French accent that really just makes it great. Is when he goes, "We're going to get, we're going to just break into the CIA," you know. It's like it's, it's like this this gruff French guy who I feel like is always drunk, you know, because of his his vocal mannerisms. But he's he and and Luther are opposites in a lot of ways for the reasons you mentioned. But I think also because you have one who's very calculated and one who is very much like the hammer. And so I think in watching Fallout, this is, it's a great comparison. They compare Ethan with Henry Cavill's character. Ethan's the surgical tool and then Cavill's the hammer. This is the same thing. You've got Luther, who is this calculated tech guy, which, by the way, I was reading one of the, one of the comments was that he was cast because he doesn't look like a computer nerd. He doesn't look like that. And the fact that you have Krieger who doesn't look like what he is, but the fact that he he doesn't seem like the hammer. He he seems like the guy who'd be precision. And so there's this like kind of visually opposite looks from these two characters. And I like that they sort of play off each other that way. And I think that it's a great casting choice because just like the movie and just like you mentioned, it questions our expectations. It questions our reality of who's the good guy and who's not. And I love that Luther, his character continues through the series because he is such an integral part of Ethan's team and it's that team oriented I'll talk about more of this on on our uh, on our episode in a couple of weeks but just the fact that Ethan's team becomes an integral part of his world it's not just Ethan Hunt and IMF it's about Ethan and all of his people which I think is hilarious because his team his original team is blown up and destroyed in the first 15 minutes of the movie but I think that that chemistry and the ability to lean on one another, it, it really starts with him and Luther. And there's a that great conversation at the end where he says, how does it feel? Disavowed. I like it. I don't remember that, the exact words, but it's like, it's a good feeling to, to not be disavowed or to feel like I'm kind of credited again. And it's cool. It's a great starting point for their relationship. Yeah. Because they both actually care. That's
0: the thing. Like they, they truly do care about their reputations and they don't want to be Seen and believed to be something they're not, whereas many of the people in this world are just ultimately all about themselves. The other carryover characters in this are interesting. I can say this because he's in the credits, so I'm not spoiling anything at all because he is actually a big part of it. But like Kittredge, who is really, really good in this role, I think, because you never really know whose side he's on. He plays that perfectly. He disappears after Mission Impossible One, and reappears in Dead Reckoning Part One as the IMF director. <laughs> I will talk about it when it when it comes out. But like, I have no idea how that happens, and why, where he's been for twenty seven years, and <laughs> just on a vacation, and it all went to hell. So he like had to come back. I I don't know, but like, it's hilarious to me that he comes back. But I think he's so good in this role, and. Specifically because of what is going on in his in his relationship with Ethan, where he suspects Ethan. And all of the logical pieces, I mean, that's the point, right? Phelps has set him up. And Ethan's like, I'm the only one left alive. And Kittredge is like, yeah, you are. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Like, you should Question him, right? And the the normal—that's what I like about the plots in these movies, generally, and this one in particular—is it makes sense if you you as the IMF, he's—they're not doing something wrong. They should try to bring him in. Ethan is going rogue, by all accounts, right? We understand that he's innocent and he's trying to prove his innocent. But that's just one of the best kind of stories to me—is when you have the truth and you know it as a character and the audience can be on your side, but no one else has any reason to believe you whatsoever. Because yeah. all of the the superfluous data says you're lying. And you're yeah. in a world of lies. And so I just I think that he's great. Um and then the other one real quick is is I don't know if you even knew this. I did not know it until recently. The arms dealer played by Vanessa Redgrave Max Mitsopoulos. Uh, the one who is working with Job to buy the knock list, Vanessa Mitsopoulos, I should have, or Alana Mitsopoulos, I should have made the connection of the name, but she tends to go by White Widow in Fallout instead of her actual name. She is the daughter of Max Mitsopoulos, the arms dealer, which is why she's an arms dealer in Fallout. Like And I actually, now that I have the connection, I think it's really awesome and I, I appreciate that they didn't oversell it to be like, here's the cool thing we did, but they just did it and let it sort of exist very casually, uh, and I, I like that. So she's a carryover character as well.
1: Okay, I didn't know that. Uh, so when I read the notes, I was like, oh, that's a that's an interesting thing. As, and this is after I watched Fallout. I was like, oh, that's that's nice. Now I can feel a little bit more satisfied there. But I, I would co-sign with Kittridge. I think that what makes him so good is so he's coming off of at this point, clear and present danger where he plays Robert Ritter, who is definitely not about the integrity of the organization that he works for in that movie. He goes up against uh, Harrison Ford's character and that he calls him a boy scout. and But the same kind of demeanor exists where he just kind of, it's this delivery of hard lines. And it's like, he's channeling, His inner Captain Kirk, except it's not as pronounced. And that whole dinner sequence just makes me smile because he. So I think I am a big fan of the Dutch angle. I've talked about it with Adam on an original series. It is. This is your movie. (laughs) Way too much. (laughs) Uh, My son and I have been going through the MCU little by little. We watched Thor the other night and man, Kenneth Branagh went nuts with this Dutch angle. I was like, dude back off the Dutch angle. I read why he did it. And it was like, cause he wanted to make it more comic book. Like I'm like, look, you're, 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 you're directing a comic book movie. That's enough comic book esceness that you need. This was better, but there were still, <laughs> there's still a lot of Dutch angles. I'm like, I get the tension. This is a less is more technique. You have got to just scale back the, the Dutch angle dude. And Brian De Palma was a big fan, obviously, but where it was effective, was that whole restaurant sequence that that culminated in the in the explosion of the uh, of the aquarium. And it's because of, in part, Kittredge's line delivery, where he's like, for months we've been looking for a mole and you're the last one there. And it's I can't. So honest, it's, it's so great. good. It's so good. And you're absolutely right, Aaron. At that point, we're like, we're on Ethan's side because we've been with him. But Kittredge has the same level of integrity that hunt does as we come to find out he wants the integrity of imf to stay intact this is an organization that operates under the covers and in in the shadows but has to maintain a level of integrity in order to make sure that the missions get complete and i think that there's a great similarity between him and ethan because they both want the truth to come out in the in this first entry obviously ethan wants to clear his name and subsequently get his parents off the hook from being dragged off in handcuffs, as he says. But I think you're right. There's such a there's a parallel there about they, they both want that. But they're sort of in conflict throughout this whole thing. And, you know, Jim Phelps is sort of the crux, you know, even has to get that convincing uh, story over to Kittredge. The way the way it goes down is, is fantastic. I also love the fact that Kittredge, uh, he respects Ethan so once they uh, once Max boots up the floppy disk, oh gosh, are you kidding me? Always fun. They're, oh dude, they're, everything they're,
0: when he's like on the net on the user user net, trying to find job three fourteen, <laughs> and he's oh, like, gosh. I was like, what is no, this is no, I this had
1: to, is, su- this is I had to
0: suspend it and be like, okay, I'm I appreciate this when it was nineteen ninety six, and I cannot judge it for not being an internet when the internet didn't exist yet in this yeah. way but like it's just, yeah but it's
1: hard to watch <laughs> it is hard to watch and it's the same thing with like a movie like hackers i will watch that thing over and over again knowing that none of that is realistic and uh adam and i were talking about those types of movies and it's it's the it's the idea of what the internet should be or could be or what it is and the idea of what hackers could be like the net with Sandra Bullock is another great example. It gets closer. I mean, there are chat rooms and but I thought it was so fascinating that wow she could order a pizza online and it's at her house like twenty minutes. I'm like, yeah, that's what I do with my Subway sandwiches every Thursday or whatever. But the same thing with with Kittridge and being able to, you know, put Ethan in a position where he's gonna have to find a way to get the truth to Kittredge And how Kittredge just absolutely respects Ethan. So after they escape from the the heated disc incident, he's talking to um, I forget what the guy's name, uh, his little second in command. He goes, "These guys are trained to be ghosts. He, you know, he'll blend in. You know, what are we gonna do? Put a guy at the airport? T-. You know, it's just those kinds of lines that show me that he he knows who he's dealing with, and all he can do is is just follow. He can't get in front of this, and uh, and I, and I like that. I like that we see him not feeling like he's any smarter than Ethan but that he's at least I'm going to say as close as I can and at the right moment hopefully I can overtake him and fortunately he doesn't have to do that that Kittredge gives him the glasses where he can see what's going on or he gets the glasses and the watch to Kittredge and Kittredge finds out what's going on
0: while you were talking I was looking at Henry Cerny that's Kittredge his credits and I just figured out where he was and why he probably wasn't the imf director he was filling in he was uh the director for the a-team uh, in the a-team oh <laughs> a,
1: little, little, a cross-pollination it, there i like that it's they great. were like we got to
0: get this guy let's hi-. it's like a you know it's like big big money corporations where they like hire ceos away from each other
1: is like, that, need... was, was that a promotion yeah i don't i don't <laughs> <For> know <laughs> <laughs> i guess maybe it's like a tangent lateral move yeah, lateral, lateral move. move to the a-team <laughs> yeah
0: speaking of the a-team that is a much more action oriented series. How did the action hold up for you in this one?
1: I liked it and I'm I'm I liked it because it feels as you mentioned earlier very grounded. It doesn't feel real bombastic. The the thing that the the thing that makes it great for future installments is the least appealing part of the movie for me and that's the whole thing on the bullet train with the helicopter because I'm always going to lean towards practical effects and Just real, like, literal gravity of situations. And so that iconic scene inside Langley where he's doing everything and having to maneuver all the the tension there is what makes it so great is because those are things that could quite literally exist. When you move to the bullet train sequence and you get to what the guy who doesn't see a lot of bad CGI seeing a lot of bad CGI in, in some of the explosions. I was a little kind of like, eh, okay. And I usually sort of fast forward through a little bit of that because it just isn't great. Like it's very compact. Um it feels a little too unbelievable. But then you would miss using the gum. And I, you yes. can't miss
0: using the gum. Relay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. I find the timestamp for that and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna back it up about three seconds and then watch that. But it's um but again, it's it's good. It's just I think De Palma's success is found in the first two thirds of the movie, and then when we get to, in fact, it's it, there's a there's a legit musical shift into the theme song, and like, oh, okay, this is an action set piece. Like, this is not like, doo-doo. it's like, you know, and I visually see the jump, which feels a little too jarring for me. It doesn't take away anything of my love for the movie. It's just the least favorite part of the movie for me.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I do. And you know, thank you to Danny Elfman. I know people will say that they prefer the score of some other Mission Impossible films overall. I mean, this has had much like directors, it's got quite a few big names who've done incredible work on the scores in different movies, but that theme and what Danny Elfman did with it is memorable. And it's used over and over and over. So people are iterating on it to make it into something else, but you can't hear it and not know what it is, or you can't hear the words mission impossible. And as you demonstrated at the beginning of this podcast, not start humming it and bobbing your head and knowing exactly how it
1: goes. Yeah. And I'll just say this. I think that you and I, I mean, I think Hans Zimmer for us is tops. I think Newman is your guy you like is it I Thomas love Newman? Thomas like? Newman yes yeah and I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into Jerry Goldsmith James Horner those guys what I think is great about Danny Elfman as a composer is that he's incredibly diverse now look he is very recognizable in anything like named Batman or Beetlejuice <laughs> anything titled that but there are movies out there even movies that I didn't like, like The Circle, that we wanted to like so much. His score is amazing because it's fitting for the movie. Same thing here. Mission Impossible. I would not have pegged this to be a Danny Elfman score because I'm so used to his Nightmare Before Christmases and all of his like Tim Burton-inspired weirdness in his scores that are very iconic musically. When I can see him, and or hear him in this case... Do what he does in Mission Impossible and other movies that really do expand his capability. He is probably one of, maybe not my favorite, but one of the most recognizable, talented, versatile um, composers out there. And I and I like the soundtrack a lot. I, I bought the score whenever it, and I, and I would replay the the iteration of the Mission Impossible thing with the just all the kind of a, the techno-y flavor behind it. I was like, this is a this is a running song. Like this is one of the first songs that. When I started jogging, I'm like, I'm going on the track with this one. This is good stuff. I like it. I like it.
0: I guess the only other thing I really wanted to mention is just tech. I think, you know, this movie's we have we kind of already touched on some of it here with the masks. And the initial opening of this is so good because you don't know it's coming. You don't know what's happening. And when he rips off the mask, it's it's fantastic. And, of course, how it comes back into play later on in the episode. I, we've gotten to the point now where I think it's sort of a crutch and it's one of those things where it's like, oh, we're a Mission Impossible movie, so we have to give people masks. And it's a little bit. I mean, you don't <laughs> actually have to. It's We've had it a lot, but here it's just perfectly used. And you've got the gum, of course. You've got the Usenet type stuff trying to transfer and you got like the knock list and, and it's just all that stuff is so aged out for the most part. But but other than that, really there's not a whole lot of tech going on. I mean, the the infiltration of the CIA is really maybe the coolest tech type of scene. And it's not electronic technology. It's, you know, the way he plant, it's planning. It's the heist. Essentially. It's a heist. It's a mini heist in the middle of the movie. And I love that. Quite a bit. I mean, I, I, and the I glasses. Think I... I think the glasses are good. Yeah. That comes glasses back are good. into play, where he's he's wearing the, the glasses to so, show that Jim Phelps is alive. And and it's broadcasting back to uh, Kittredge's very 1996s. Didn't have an Apple Watch back then. <laughs> uh, it looks <laughs> like an old digital or like a digital Timex or something. <laughs> like, with, like a keyboard calculator. With, with a was, camera. Like a little... Yeah. I like, mean, it is...
1: <laughs> like a it's a cool
0: watch. concept back then, uh, and it's good enough implementation of it.
1: But, well, yeah. and it came with it came with a great line: "Good morning, Mister Phelps." You know, yes. <laughs> this is, I mean, I mean, it just it gave me it gave me like moments of uh, Mister anderson You know, from the from the Matrix, it's that kind of delivery that makes it so great. I think for me, if I had to take something from ninety six to into today because most of the stuff feels like it kind of exists in some way shape or form i would take the uh i guess the 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 bathroom juice that <laughs> what's her name put in don lo's coffee to make him have the runs like that's something you could get out of a and like a an event it's like i, I got to go or this guy can't make the uh the presentation cuz he's uh, he's got the runs he's got to run cuz he's got the runs so yeah i i think you're right the um the tech on display inside the The whole heist business was really good. Just getting into the vault is fantastic. I love the way that it looks. I remember reading that De Palma wanted to reflect the two thousand one, the clean cleanliness of the of the discovery inside that clean room because that's what it was. Even the I think for me, if there's tech to be highlighted, it's the three ways in which a person could be um, detected in the room. Either weight or temperature, or I think facial or whatever. But and and to usurp all that in the way that they did was so fantastic.
0: Oh yeah, I mean just the design of it, the the writing, the narrative, the scripting of coming up with that is brilliant and so intriguing, so neat to to think that if your temperature changes by a degree, and and the tension, like you said, when the water drop is coming, and I love that we spent a long time on it. Like we watched that sucker move across his, gl- his glasses and like m- for what feels legitimately like five minutes before it ever actually gets to the point where he has to catch it. And it's just, you know, it's nerve wracking stuff. So yeah, I like all that stuff as well. And I mean, it's good. I think it is a really, really great movie. I love it. It's one of my favorite ones to rewatch partially because it is also so compact and self-contained like we talk about this and lot, a lot a lot of podcasts that we do where we like franchises and we like when they build off of each other and it's fun to see stuff connected but sometimes i'm not going to just pop in one in the middle of a franchise to rewatch it typically you know i want to do a whole series watch which is a much longer commitment that i've got a plan for and stuff but mission impossible one you just watch that anytime and have a good, yeah. and it's less than two hours.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One of favorite. Patrick's favorite. Yeah. Well, it has a beginning, middle, and end. And I yeah. think that that's, that tells me that, especially with initial entries, the success of the franchise came because you gave your audience a complete story. You weren't trying to bank on something to happen afterwards. So, so good for them. Good for Brian and company. And that's going to wrap up this edition of Feeling Film. Next week, we are going rogue. We got Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. It's going to be a great, great talk. I think this is the f- fourth entry? It it's fifth? the fifth. And I didn't fifth, realize sorry.
0: until just now that you know yeah. people go rogue in every single one of these. It's like another reoccurring <laughs> trope. But I just realized we are doing the two entries that are literally about stealing the knock list. They, they're oh. both the same plot. Because that's, awesome. that's what essentially Rogue Nation is. Is they're stealing all the cover identities of the the agents all over the, like it might be just about people. I can't remember, yeah. but it's the same concept. Uh, as okay. this Okay.
1: <laughs> so an update. <laughs> I guess I have a type. I have a type. <laughs> well, Chris McCory is at the helm for this one and it's, we're full on into the franchise at this point. So it's going to be a lot of fun to watch and a lot of fun to talk about. So Aaron, let's get ready for rogue nation. We'll talk to you guys soon.